0: What's up, everybody? My name is Ish, and I am the founder of Virtually. And this is the Virtually Podcast, where we discuss everything online education, including higher ed, online trade schools, boot camps, ISAs, and so much more. This week's conversation is with Justin Nguyen of Get Your Grind Up. We talk about COVID-19 and its effect on teachers, students, and higher ed. Justin gives some great advice on what you should do if you're a student during this crisis. I hope you enjoy Hey everyone. My name is Ish, the founder and CEO of Virtually. And today I'm joined by Justin Nguyen of Get Your Grind Up. Justin, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me on. So my name is Justin Wynn. I'm the CEO of Get Your Grind Up. And basically our goal at Get Your Grind Up is really to share the cheat codes to college. And we can dive a little bit more about in, into that because I know the whole topic of today is going to be about higher ed and everything like that. So really looking forward to that. But I guess the other side thing that I do is LinkedIn Consulting as I've built up a, a huge following on that platform where I'm getting like 200,000 views every single month off of student content, basically. So that's sort of what's fueled Get Your Grind Up. And it's it's been crazy just to see the reactions of other people around the world when it comes to student voices and everything like that.
0: Awesome. And I definitely want to talk about Get Your Grind Up. And I think it's going to have a huge role to play in terms of like, what is the world going to look like after this? And for context, right now as we're recording this, uh, it is in the midst of the COVID-19 epidemic. And to start us off, the first thing I wanted to go through was a quick timeline of everything that's kind of happened with COVID, where we are now, and the implications, specifically for education. Uh, I know Justin, you're in you're in the field of education. Myself and my company, we're also in the field of education, so this has a huge kind of impact on our industries. And so I kind of want to discuss those implications. Uh, but real quick, let me let, let's start off with the timeline and kind of everything that's happened so far. So. Uh, I was doing some research and New York Times has this incredible article where it just goes through the timeline of everything that's happened with COVID-19, all starting with December 31st. It's kind of crazy. December 31st is kind of the first milestone that they have. And that is where dozens of cases are discovered in Wuhan. January 11th, first known death of COVID-19. January 20th, first confirmed case in the United States. January 30th, WHO, who declares a global health emergency. Yeah, by February 23rd, there's a huge surge of cases in Italy. February 29th, first U.S. death. March or March 13th is when President Trump declares a national state of emergency for the United States. And then March 15th to 30th is quite a blur, like a lot of different things happens. Uh, there's mass lockdowns all around the world, shutdown of non-essential businesses, school closures, layoffs, and this kind of idea of social distancing really takes off. And today, April 6th, we're still not at the peak. Luckily, quarantining is it's showing to be effective. You know, schools have been closed and, you know, everybody's working remotely. And it seems like some regions are kind of like flattening out. Uh, So there's some the quarantine efforts are really working, but a lot of places have not reached their peak and still won't for another one to two months. So. Now I kind of want to shift gears and talk about the education side of things. And so my sister, she's, she's a junior at the University of Michigan. She left to go back to school after spring break ended um, March, March 7th, I believe. And just about a week and a half later, she, she was back. Back home, given that schools had closed. And so as you being somebody who works very closely with students, especially college-age students, what are you hearing from them? What, what is going on from their point of view?
1: So with students, they're really scared because I've seen, I mean, a few students have reached out to me saying, hey, Justin, how would you go about the whole COVID thing that's going on right now? Because I had an internship that was set for the summer, but now they just retracted it and I'm not necessarily doing that internship anymore. Or they're really in this space of, I don't even know if my internship's going to happen. And it's been really crazy to look at it from my perspective because I'm not necessarily a student anymore, but I still feel empathy for them because it's like, I couldn't imagine that you worked so hard throughout the year, right? To get that internship at this great company. And then all of a sudden, because of things that aren't really in your control, you can't go to that internship anymore. It's just been canceled for no reason. So it's it's been wild to hear some of the stories. I've heard people that just got their internship cut. I've heard People that are especially like international students are really affected by this whole thing. I know. So I hopped on a call with someone and she's really struggling to find that internship over the summer because of her international status. And it's been really interesting. But what I can say is there is a light in this sort of whole COVID-19 thing for students. And if you know how to navigate it the right way, it can actually really benefit your career um, in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I totally see the fear as well. My, my sister, she's
0: kind of been adjusting to online classes, right? And so everybody's been kind of scrambling, both kind of industry, same as with higher ed, same with even teachers in universities. And it's, it's interesting because there's a scramble happening and people just don't know what to do. I'm curious what you've heard, how are teachers adapting to online teaching?
1: So I've I've got some inside sources at some schools. So I reached out to them to see how like their universities are doing. And this is no real bias for me, but UCF surprisingly has been pretty good in their transition, but that's mainly because they've had a lot of online courses. Um, previously so they've done like online degrees as well as my sophomore and junior year of college we have something called like lecture capture so instead of having to go to class every single day what they would do for the big lecture classes so just think of like marketing 101 or bio 101 or anything like that what they would do is you can go to class but There's only 300 seats in the class, and there's like 1,200 students in the class. So, what they did was they would record the lecture and put it online. So, you can either watch it live or you could watch it later on in the day at any time that you wanted. So, that was great for me because I used it to my advantage of like being able to intern and essentially work because then I can just watch it on two times speed, right? Instead, in turn, an hour and a half course into just 45 minutes. So, it was great for time management. But they had those systems already in place. What I've heard is from institutions that, if you're thinking of like more prestigious schools that don't necessarily have um, the capacity to try out online um, schools. So think of like the private schools, the smaller schools, et cetera, that they're like, oh, my God, now we have to transfer um, to online teaching. They're really struggling because a lot of their professors are older. And they've, they're more on the research side. So they're like, I don't want to learn Zoom. I don't want to learn all these different programs that I have to do. I just want to teach my class. And teaching on Zoom versus teaching in person is completely different in terms of the way that you have to engage an audience and interact with them and everything like that. So it's it really depends on each school situation. But for the most part, if the school has had any sort of online like strategy previously of like online degrees or courses or anything like that they're probably transitioning a little bit better at least from the teaching perspective but if the school is a smaller private school where they're used to just they preach about like having small class sizes and everything like that they're probably struggling a little bit and we've already seen some schools close down because of this so it's been it's been pretty crazy
0: that's really fascinating to hear especially kind of the bit about how these larger kind of class sizes they're the ones that are really kind of seamlessly going through this because they've actually leveraged technology and they've had it integrated into their program from day one. And it's actually the smaller classes that are struggling. That's really fascinating. Uh, So I know, I know Zoom is really popular right now, but what other, I guess, tooling are students and teachers relying on right now during this crisis?
1: I don't know. I'm really only hearing Zoom to be honest. I haven't heard much about any other platforms. I mean, they're pushing people to like do things on the side of like LinkedIn Learning or Teachable and taking online other online courses, which is weird because it's like you're already paying for a course, why why should you be paying for another course? But if you think about it, at least from the larger university standpoint, what a lot of these schools will do is they don't necessarily even teach in the classes anymore. Like a lot of my homework that I remember in school was basically online through Pearson or my lab and, and all of those things. So that is still staying the same. That's a, that's why, again, with these smaller universities where they're more focused on personalization for lack of better words of like their education and providing worksheets to their students, et cetera, they're struggling with their with this transportation and transition because they're not used to utilizing a platform like a Pearson or my lab or MyStatLab lab or anything like that.
0: Yeah, totally. So I'm also curious is like, do you think that an online education can be as effective as an offline one? Now, it turns out right now, we have no idea when schools are actually going to return to normal. I read an article by Scott Galloway, a kind of a celebrity marketing professor from NYU Stearns. And he, in his article, mentions that he personally believes that a lot of schools Hundreds of schools will not actually return in in the fall. So you know right now we're just looking at this in the short term. but this imagine this could, could last potentially eight months. And so a lot of you, students will have to get used to learning online. And so I, I'm curious from your experience and what you've observed in the conversations you've had. do you think, I guess one, are students adjusting well to this online learning? And is your hypothesis that it's a good medium and it's an effective medium for learning?
1: I think it's a good medium, but I don't think we've figured out the execution of it. If you've looked at online courses historically, maybe not necessarily just like over the past like month or two, but historically, a lot of the times retention rates are really bad. For instance, I know from like Full Sail University, it's a university in Central Florida. They're mainly focused on like music and film and and that type of things. They have a whole bunch of Grammy winner, winners, et cetera. And they have a lot of online degrees. They've been doing it for a while because they're very tech driven, but their retention rate is like below 50% or something like that. So what ends up happening is, again, it's very different to teach an online class and retain their engagement and their, their attention that way versus trying to maintain someone's attention in class because if you're in class especially again these smaller classes it's like hey ish start paying attention like we're going over this next thing but if it's all online you don't necessarily have that connection right you can have on zoom right you can game the system just have some loop playing around the whole time and your professor will never know or you don't even have a camera and the professor can't necessarily say hey, "ish, go buy a camera because it's like, hey, there's no one, you can't even find a camera right now. They've been bought up like crazy." But also, too, it's like so you're saying I have to pay more, right? So, it's it's really this tricky situation where I think it is the future, but I don't think anyone has really mastered um, the execution of online education just yet.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I I kind of want to real quickly hop over to this LinkedIn post that you had recently and i think you had some really interesting insights that resonated with me and i'm going to read that linkedin post real quick because i think it might be valuable for the audience in terms of context so in it you say here is where i think the biggest disruption in higher ed will come from once everything returns to quote unquote normal it won't be majors income share agreements or even recruiting not at least yet I believe it will be the professors, especially the non-tenured professors. The ones that are innovative will see the power of freelancing in higher ed. Think about it. If you're a non-tenured professor, on average, you make about $5,400 each month, according to ZipRecruiter. Example, you're an economics professor. You want to teach micro and macro to students because the traditional higher ed, you were able to teach 150 students a year. Now with the internet, you've made a course such that it's automated. You set 10 hours a week for office hours to help students that need the help. You spend another 10 hours answering emails. You enroll hundred students a month in each course, and it takes 40 hours to complete at your own pace. You price the course at $300, a uh, hundred students, two classes, $300. That's $60,000 a month before expenses. So it's overall cheaper for students, more pay for teachers. And you're basically, you then kind of point to Khan Academy and show kind of the scale that it's been able to achieve. And so one of the things you're kind of implying is that a lot of professors are going to see a bigger opportunity because of this crisis. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you just think about it, right, if you're, I think you have to first look at it from the student perspective. The whole thing right now is student debt and how that's such a big problem. And so I think the average, I think, what did I say? The average course credit was, it was like $500, $600, right? Na- national average is $600 per credit hour. So you have to multiply that by three. So you're paying about $1,800 per course for the most part. So instead of paying $1,800, imagine a professor who's a microeconomics um, professor. He just does his microeconomics 101 class for $150. You've just cut that price by 95%. And you're saving ninety five percent of your regular tuition costs, and you're doing it from your home, and you don't have to drive to campus, pay for parking, or anything like that. So in the long run, it makes sense. And again, it all really comes down to the creative, which a lot of the, which a lot of things in the world really end up coming down to. Of is the professor good enough? Can you keep the students' attention? Because the cost is extremely low compared to what it would cost to go on onto campus. But the other thing, which I didn't mention in the post, because A, you don't have enough characters in the post, but also you don't, I didn't bring up the whole topic of what's the word? Accreditation. So what what I mean by accreditation is a lot of universities, at least the ones that you should be going to They're supposed to be accredited by some list of accreditation agency. And without that accreditation, then your degree is essentially worthless. And that's what's happening with a lot of students because they don't necessarily know to look that up when they're in high school. And they're going to these private for-profit universities and their degrees aren't accredited. So when they graduate and they go to look for a job, they're like, oh, wait, your degree actually doesn't mean anything because there's no one to back up what you actually learned. So that's sort of the biggest hump that a lot of these professors have to overcome but i think if the business professors start to do it then everything will start to fall from there the business professors probably have the most acumen when it comes to creating an online course and learning how to market it and getting brands behind it but for instance let's just say you're a marketing professor let's just say Gary V right creates a course and he it's the marketing one-on-one course. And what you'll learn is social media marketing. You'll learn traditional marketing, a little bit about everything and creative, et cetera. And it costs you $500 to do it as a student. You go through it. And what Gary's done is he's worked with the brands that he already, wo- already works for with uh, VaynerMedia. So just think of like Pepsi, uh, Mr. Peanut, etc. all of these other brands. And he's partnered with them saying, hey, if someone gets this degree from Gary V, then you have been accredited by that company, essentially. So I think that might be a way that professors can kind of work around that by leveraging some of the relationships that they already have in these industries. And I don't know if it becomes a thing. Like I said, $60,000 seems a lot better than $5,400 a month. So that, I mean, that's pretty crazy. If a professor starts making 60 grand a month, that'd be insane. But I mean, it's it's crazy what what the possibilities are with it.
0: Absolutely. And that really resonates with me. With the teachers, I think to a degree, they become their own brands, right? I think it'll be kind of two pronged. One, I think like it seems like we're headed in a direction where you know the, the teachers, they're very reputable sources in terms of they have an online presence like uh, Scott Galloway. He's very reputable online. He has a large LinkedIn following. People, people trust him, right? He has a brand and by being one of his students, you would get his stamp of approval. Right, and so I think companies would see that, and that could be the thing that gets your foot in the door. On the other side, I also feel like we're seeing companies kind of move more towards being merit-based than rather than just looking for a stamp of approval. And at least from where I've seen this in my in my personal experiences, I when I was an intern at at Facebook, I was a software engineering intern in 2015 at Facebook, and I remember after finishing my internship, my recruiter came and spoke with me, and she's like, "Hey." Here's a full-time offer. And I was like, what do you mean full-time offer? I, <laughs> I, I have another two years of school left. And she's like, yes, yes. You, you know, you can choose to go finish school. And then after you finish school, you can come work for us or you could come work for us starting next week. <laughs> and that just blew my mind. But the reason that they said that is because they had seen what I had done through the three months. They had seen that I met the bar, the hiring bar that they had set for full-time employees. They they knew that I had the capability to succeed at this job. And so having a degree at the end of the day did not matter, right? It was more about like evidence-based kind of decision where it's like, hey, Based on kind of what you've been able to achieve, that's what we care about more than a diploma. Do you feel like companies are headed in this trend where, where more than the brand of the university, that based on what projects and what achievements you have, that's what's most important?
1: I definitely think it's headed that way but the problem comes that the students don't know how to navigate those waters. For instance, right, Facebook and all those companies say, "Oh, we've taken off the degree off of our requirements." And yes, that might be true, but I guarantee you that that ATS system that your resume goes through, they're looking to see where you're graduating from, what school you have, and what GPA, etc. So, what I mean by the students don't necessarily know how to navigate it is I do think that the, the requirement has been dropped, but until you can get some face time with the actual recruiter or the person that's looking to hire for that position, then you need that degree. So the way to work around it is how do you actually get in front of that person when you don't necessarily have a degree and that's what they don't teach in school. I actually just had Austin Belkak on uh, the Declassified College podcast, and we talked exactly about how he's been able to do it. Again, these students do have degrees, but he doesn't go through the traditional ATS path of just applying. I think, according to him, he says like t- only two percent of people who apply online get an interview. So if you're playing that game, you're just I'm, you're just hitchhiking essentially, just hoping for something to happen. But The way to work around it is finding a way to create a champion on the inside. And Austin calls this, you create a a relationship and then you create a a VVP, a value validation project. And that's essentially what you did with your internship is you validated your value that you provide to Facebook. You want to do this with a value validation project. Um, before you even work for a company. And that's how you can get an in- interview by not necessarily having all of the credentials on your your resume. So for instance, what that would look like is, let's just say Get Your Grind Up is a huge company in the future, right? And you're looking to apply for Get Your Grind Up. A VVP might look like, oh, if you're a marketing student going through our marketing campaigns that we've run in the past, looking at our going through our facebook and looking and analyzing our page and seeing what ads we've run previously and seeing the engagement on that and saying oh if I were to do this, this is what I would do X, Y, and Z. And this is why, because I talked to this customer, this student, this other student, et cetera, to come up with this idea. And you might be saying, Justin, that's a lot of work. That's something I don't really want to do. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're going down the route of the person that doesn't necessarily have the credentials up front of graduating from a Stanford, a Harvard, et cetera, you have to find a way to prove that you actually have those skills to pay the bills. So that's the only way to do that is through hard work and finding a way to showcase the skills that you actually have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess I I left out the part that I, at the end of the day, I did go to a top tier university at the University of Michigan. The reason I was even able to get that internship was because Facebook recruits at the University of Michigan. They don't recruit at every university. And so already I had a leg up on computer science students who were going to these small liberal art universities where they don't even get the chance to get FaceTime with these recruiters. And so you you bring up a really good point. And one of the things that's been on my mind as well is that, I guess, as we start to see these kind of like smaller private institutions emerge where it's more, it's more like a trade school than it is like a university. And we've kind of seen a large kind of emergence of these types of online trade schools. And the way they've been kind of able to overcome this hurdle of accreditation is by leveraging the income share agreement, which you actually mentioned in your post. And it seems like income share agreements, that's, you know, the idea of like commission based services, they've been around for a while. But for the first time, I think right around 2011, 2012, we started seeing the emergence of them in education. And the big innovation here, so people in industry claim, is that it aligns the incentives of institutions and students. And it reduces the barrier to entry, because again, for those who don't know what income share agreements are, essentially, they allow students to go through a program and then not pay for any upfront cost. Essentially how they pay back the institution for the education is once they've actually landed a job and it is over some threshold decided by the institution, they pay a percentage of their salary back to the institution for a number of years. So for an example of this is Lambda School. I'm not sure if you're familiar of Lambda School, Justin. They're they're the big one who led the charge here. And what they do is they do a 17% income share for 24 months. So once you've gone through their program, right? and you've graduated and landed a job in software engineering for over $50,000 a year in terms of income, you pay back 17% of your income over 24 months. And I remember you know, first hearing about this and it blew my mind. And I realized like, oh my God, like this is life-changing for people. People are going from the service jobs, waiters, waitresses, working at movie theaters, making minimum wage to making six figures in under a year it seems game changing. I, one thing I'm curious about it, what are your thoughts on income share agreements? Are they the future? Or is it is it a very niche kind of financing mechanism that uh, is not going to see mainstream?
1: I think in theory, it makes a ton of sense, right? Because why would you pay for something that you don't necessarily know the value of? And if you have the ability to not necessarily pay up front and only pay if you see value from it, then it makes complete sense. And it, like you said earlier, it aligns sort of the mission of the university with the mission of the student, as well as the mission from the company that's looking to hire these students too. Now, the problem for me is like you said we've seen this for since like 2011 2012 but nothing has really popped off so to say in terms of mainstream right it's it started off by having niche companies are just basically focusing on software engineering for the most part and it's relatively stayed the same for that. I haven't really seen much of like a finance lambda school or a psychology lambda school or anything like that and it's been interesting to see like why why is that the case. I haven't done too much research into why but like why hasn't it picked up again I'm not sure if you have any more insight onto why you think it hasn't been picked up by other industries. It might just not be as profitable.
0: Yeah. I, and I actually do have a lot of thoughts about this. And I think you're right. Lambda school is where it's been most successful. And I think one of the big reasons it's been successful is because there's just such a high demand for software engineering, especially now. And the pay is just so, is so high too. So you can like double, triple your salary in under a year. So the value proposition is very high. I think it's partly just because the companies that are most equipped to kind of uh, run these kind of income share agreement, educational institutions. They have to be venture-backed. And all the venture-backed companies are in San Francisco right now. That's that's my hypothesis. I, it's it's unclear if this is going to change, but I, I think if there was a the time for it to change, it would be now more than ever. According to the Washington Post, 10 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits in the month of March. And so the the problem that I see, and this is going to be, I think, the the bigger implication of covid-19 more than i think just immediately the economy crashing because of you know people not being able to work but this drastic drastic rise in unemployment and you have all these employees who are you know in the short term they're going to get by on unemployment and working for these on demand services but when you know things start to go back to normal these kind of grocery stores and delivery services aren't going to need these employees. And so they're gonna to have to let them go. And they won't be able to return to their previous industries like travel or hospitality, these local businesses. So where are they going to go? And so I think if there's a time for these risk-free online trade schools to take off, it would be now.
1: I agree, but it's I think I think the scale model of of the income share agreement, I think that's where you might start running into problems of can you hit other verticals other than software engineering? like what is another vertical that really produces high, high, high end salary positions upon graduation? There's not many out there. If you really think about it, like just to say general business degree, right? Whether it's finance, marketing, etc., most of those students that are graduating are maybe making $50,000. And if they're making more, it's probably because they're, they've got a consulting gig at a big four company, right? So it's, is it really economical for the other industries, other than just software engineering and like maybe regular engineering, like oil and mechanical or oil and chemical engineering? I don't know. I'm, again, I'm not. Have you done research into that? So I haven't, but I, you know, one of the things I'm really thinking about right now is people aren't looking
0: for high-paying jobs; they're just looking for jobs. Yeah. And so the the industries that were they were trained to be in, those industries may not exist after COVID nineteen is over. And so what they need to do is they need to retrain. And what are they going to do? Are they going to go back to school? Are they going to spend two to four years getting another degree? Oh, absolutely not. One it's time consuming and there's no guarantee they'd even land a job once it's over. And so that's why I'm thinking like these online trade schools could be a game changer is because one, they're, they're not long. They're focused very specifically on one trade. Within six to nine months, you learn all the skills you need to succeed in this industry. Second, they're online. They're accessible from anywhere. So it doesn't matter where you are in the country, you can still be learning from an expert. And the last thing is this income share agreement where it's risk-free. Right now, people are losing their jobs. They cannot afford to kind of pile on fifty dollars to $100,000 of debt, given that we're headed for a rough recession. And so if somebody can go through one of these programs within six months, learn the skills that it takes to jump industries and land a job, maybe maybe not six figures, but like a solid like 50K a year job. Right. And then only pay back if they've actually succeeded in landing a job and without any risk of taking on student debt. That seems like a really high value proposition. And, you know, and it hasn't right now. It really has stuck to tech, but it, it could be like this could be the push we needed to get online educators to go out there and start these trade schools and other industries.
1: Yeah, I mean if if it's going to work, it's gonna work now, right? This is their chance to really make an impact on higher ed. I'm definitely keeping my eye on it. But for me, I just don't think it's scalable out of other verticals other than like maybe five or ten. And yeah, I mean, if that's your one business, great, it really works out for you. But I think for general like higher ed, like for a psych major. How many psych majors are graduating making more than $50,000? There's not many out there. And there's not even that many jobs that a psych major could even get to make more than $50,000 a year. So I think that's when that business model starts to run into problems. And that's probably why you haven't seen it be picked up by higher ed either, because they don't want to be held liable for all this free education that they'd be giving out essentially for that. But I don't know, we'll see. I'm excited to see where it goes in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a really good point. And obviously these trade schools can only work when there's a high demand for the jobs that they're training for. And so one thing a lot of people are saying is like, it, it's a disaster. All these like local businesses are going out of business uh, and what's going to happen. And I always feel like there's like there's this law of conservation when it comes to the economy and jobs where, yes, you know, a lot of these kind of like brick and mortar businesses are going going bankrupt. But those jobs aren't disappearing. They're just going elsewhere. They're going online. They're going to e-commerce. They're going to be content creators or online educators or gig economy. They're going to become drivers or delivery workers. And so I, I think that that's the only way you know, a program like this succeeds. If it specifically is focused on helping training people for jobs of the future, jobs that can, can survive an epidemic like this and can be completely online if they need to be.
1: No, I agree. I think I, I think there is an avenue for it to play in. I just wonder if it's ever going to encapsulate higher ed like everyone says it's going to. I'm not sure yeah. if, it ever, if it gets there or anytime soon, but it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next two to three years because of everything that's happened with the coronavirus.
0: Yeah, totally. We'll, we'll have to see. Uh, one, one last kind of point I wanted to cover, which is not just, I guess, the people who are losing their jobs, but what about now these like college seniors who this was supposed to be, you know, their second semester of college. It was supposed to be really fun. They were going to look forward to graduation. Now they might not even get the chance to walk the stage, let alone find a job. How do you think, I guess, COVID-19 is going to affect their future?
1: Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's actually like it hurts my heart, right? Because it's it's they'll never get the chance to walk across the stage, really. I mean, yes, they might do it maybe in the, in the fall or the winter or whatever it is, but it's not the same, right? If you've had to wait six to eight months after you've actually graduated. So I, I feel really bad for those seniors that are in college as well as the seniors that are in high school too. The other thing with it is you can actually use this time to navigate your career really well. And what I mean by that is, yes, you maybe you're the student that didn't have a job offer com- coming for you after you've graduated. Now is your time to shine because everyone doesn't everyone doesn't have a job um, coming for them upon graduation. So what I mean by that is you don't have a scarlet letter on you anymore because you don't have a job. You kind of have a mulligan and you can use that to your advantage by being able to figure out ways to network because everyone is online. Everyone is paying attention to their LinkedIn. Everyone is paying attention to their email way more than they were before because they have nothing better to do. And if you're a student and you you learn the email marketing and you learn how to cold message people, you will be able to get in touch with people that you never would have thought that you would have just because they see a random email of you saying, looking to connect with alumni. And they're like, oh, cool. I want to connect with some UCF students because I've got nothing better to do. And I want to find a break from doing all this work that I'm doing for for Disney or whatever it is. And and so they'll hop on a 10 or 15 minute call with you. And then you can build on that relationship. Maybe it becomes a referral for you when everything starts to shift back to normal. But if I'm a student, what I'm doing right now is putting in all the groundwork for when it does shift back to normal and I can get back into the job search, so to say, and I'll be top of mind for a lot of people. So that's what I would do if I'm in, in a lot of students' shoes. But I mean, the last thing that I would, I would talk about for seniors is this is something that I didn't even think about until I started talking to some people in higher ed is that most universities are moving more into like a pass or fail system because- these students didn't sign up for online courses so they don't necessarily want to be put on their GPA or whatever it is but how does that affect grad school how does that affect medical school is a pass the same thing as an A so if you're an A student do you like do you get dumbed down because of these people that with Cs they got a pass on their on their uh, transcript like how does that all play out over the next five or ten years who gets into medis- medical school who do- who doesn't get into medical school because of all these things that are happening and we won't know until another 10 years or so to see what the real effects are but it's gonna be really crazy especially for the gen z generation that you and i are in of like we've lived through oh eight oh nine now we've lived through this who knows what the heck is going forward? But it's it's kind of crazy to to already see what we've been through in our lifetimes.
0: Absolutely, this is a once in a generation event, right? We will we well, that will was, never that was forget the to be zero eight life.
1: and 09 too. So we've already had yeah. two once in a generation events in what right. fifteen years? So <laughs> what a time to be alive!
0: <laughs> it is absolutely insane, and I uh, you know I love the way the framing you had there, which is. You know, yes, this is affecting all of us, but seeing this as an opportunity, I, I'm sure you saw this over social media. But a lot of people are kind of reflecting on the past and the history. And one of the one of my favorite tweets is that Sir Isaac Newton he discovered calculus while he was quarantined among this was amidst another epidemic at the time. And so, you know, the the end of the the social media post is like, how are you going to spend your time, right? And so, I guess to summarize for all the listeners, how would you say like, hey, you know, we could be now quarantined for the next two months minimum. What is your advice to students right now who are kind of lost and trying to figure out what's next? How should they invest their time?
1: Yeah. I mean, let's just say you're running Instacart or Uber Eats or something like that for like five or six hours a day because you're trying to make some money to survive. And you've got plenty of, you still got plenty of time throughout the day. I'm not asking you to be on LinkedIn for 10 hours every day. You literally just take one hour Go on LinkedIn for an hour every single day, optimize your profile, make it look nice so that when you're reaching out to these people, they look, they have something nice to see and they kind of give you that reputation of like, oh, this student actually takes himself serious or herself serious. So create your linkedin page make it look nice spend an hour a day on linkedin of just messaging new people that are alumni from your schools at companies that you want to work for in the future learn about their journey etc and then from that hour what you're going to want to do is like spend another 30 minutes sending emails so it's an hour and a half a day that's one netflix special that's all it takes an hour and a half a day you do that for 2 months for the next 2 months I guarantee. I can almost guarantee you that if you do it correctly, you'll probably have a job once this whole thing starts to, um, start to like turn back to normal. Essentially, because if you generally spend an hour and a half every single day on just networking, you'll probably meet anywhere between twenty to thirty people every single week. And if you do that every single week for the next eight weeks, your network has just gone from zero to over two hundred people. And those 200 people, someone is still going to have a job out of that, hopefully, if you've done it correctly. And one of them will be looking to hire a young person, a young motivated person, and they'll appreciate you reaching out and putting in the work during all this rough time that's going on. So just do that, an hour and a half. That's all I'm asking, an hour and a half. Yeah, And with, and with compound interest, that 200
0: quickly becomes 600, 1,000, 2,000. And so the the opportunities will start pouring your way instead of you hunting them down. Exactly. I think that's one of the one of the most powerful things about, you know, building up an audience and building up a network is that over time it kind of flips. It goes from you kind of chasing to you basically having opportunities just handed to you. But it doesn't happen without making that investment every single day and consistently over a long period of time.
1: Dude, compound interest. It's something that not a lot of people understand, but I, I'm, I'm sure. And I hope people wholly understand it after what they've seen with the coronavirus. Like it's a force to be reckoned with if you know how to use it in the right way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Justin, this was, this was an
1: awesome conversation. Any last second plugs you want to give to the audience? I mean, if you're a student out there looking to learn the cheat codes to college, check out our podcast, Declassified College, on any podcasting network out there. And if you want, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Just do LinkedIn slash IN slash Justin GCGU, and that should be my profile. So just check me out there. Send me a message that they sent you to, to me, essentially, and I would love to connect and learn a little bit more about what you're doing right now.
0: Yeah, awesome. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you, Justin, for coming on. Thank you. That was Justin Dewin of Get Your Grind Up. If you're interested in learning more about Justin or Get Your Grind Up, feel free to connect with him on LinkedIn or going to getyourgrindup.com. This is Ish, signing off.